0: All right. So you should. So uh, I guess this will be, Laura. If if you can't hear me, just let me know, and I'll try to project uh, better. Uh, Before we talk about God's covenant with man, chapter seven, I'm going to review the first six chapters for a couple minutes um, to give you kind of the logic that the uh, confession is following here, Um, and. I know that last time, the last time I taught, it was on chapter 4, which is creation, and uh, when we were talking about chapter 4, I um, uh, mentioned or asked you guys, what's one of the first problems that needs to be overcome um, if we are to come to any knowledge of God whatsoever? And one of the first kind of starting points or presuppositions is that we are reliant on God to reveal himself to us um, or to condescend to us. Okay, now typically when we hear, and that's, that, that word condescend is going to come up again um, later in chapter seven. And when we hear that word, it's, we tend to think of it negatively because you know, if you were to be described as, oh, you're being condescending, it's like you're talking down to somebody. Um but in the case of God and us, of course that's true. And so it's not insulting for God to be condescending to us. Actually, it's a great act of kindness. Um, because you know, compared to him, even all the nations are what does the scripture say? Dust on the scales. Okay. Um and so the fact that God must reveal himself to us, that's the most um basic concept in life. Okay. Um and if you, if you want to like a, an analogy to think about this, you can think about um, a newborn. Newborns and babies are, are um, it's predicated, or, or their they're growing up is predicated on the fact that their mother and father condescend to them. Okay, we don't, um, when we have little ones, we don't expect them to like be born and then to assent to our you know, mental abilities. Okay, um, so, And we talked about, okay, so how is it that God reveals himself to us in two ways, through nature and through scripture? So that's how that problem is uh, overcome, nature and scripture. Um, Then um, chapter two of the confession answers a rather, uh, what would it be, I guess, intuitive question that would follow from that. Well, who is it that is revealing himself to us? And chapter two in the confession um, talks about the doctrine of the Trinity. So introduces one of the most fundamental attributes of God, uh, the doctrine, uh, or, or namely that he's Trinitarian. Okay? And it goes on a, a little bit beyond that to talk about his nature and character and so on. So by the end of chapters one and two, we've got the question, Uh, how are we to come to knowledge of God, answered by, through the scriptures and nature. And then the other question, well, who is it that's revealing himself to us? And that's answered in the Trinity and some other comments on his nature and character. Okay. Um, Chapter three deals with how this Trinitarian God behaves um, and talks about God's acts. Okay. Okay. Um, and so again, just for repetition, chapter 1, how do we know God? Chapter 2, what is God like? Chapter 3, how does God behave? What does he do? Um, and then chapter 4 is the first, well, it's the record of his first act insofar as it's made known to us, namely creation, okay? Um, and then chapter 5, after creation's been discussed, um, another reasonable question that would arise is... How is it that creation ought to be governed? And chapter 5 deals with answering that question in its discussion of God's providence. Okay. Um, I'm going to give you the same review a little bit differently. I'll do it thematically. So chapters 1 and 2, so 1 and 2, lay the foundations for how we are to come to know God. Chapters 3 to 5 introduce how he acts and how he behaves and governs things. Uh, chapter 6, um, which Robert talked about last week, represents the confession's turn to man. So chapters 1 to 5, we're dealing with God himself. Chapters 6, and then for the next couple of chapters, we're gonna, they're going to take their focus and, and zoom in on man. And uh, rather sadly, the first thing that we learn about man is that man uh, fell. And that's what Robert discussed last week. So chapter seven answers. So after the fall, chapter seven then answers the question, um, what are we going to do about it? How is this going to be fixed? If at all, because it's important to note, God is under no obligation to fix what we broke. Nevertheless, in his kindness, he does. And chapter seven deals with, Uh, that topic. Okay. So that's kind of like a 10,000 foot flyover summary of the first seven chapters and how they work together to actually tell a a rather comprehensive narrative of all of scripture in life. Um, So let's read chapter, uh, sorry, not chapter, paragraph one of chapter seven together. So why don't you look at your handout with me um, and we'll read this one together. The distance between God and his creation is so great that although reasoning creatures owe him obedience as their creator, they nonetheless could never realize any blessedness or reward from him without his willingly condescending to them. And so it pleased God to provide for man by means of covenants. Okay, um, I want to draw your attention to the first few uh, words in, in this paragraph. The distance between God and his creation is so great. Okay, so right there. Um, it's helpful to remember um, this was like one of the, if you know who Cornelius Van Til is. Um, He emphasizes this like all the time, the creator-creature distinction, like keep them so, so, so very far apart or else you will very quickly end up in error. And so it's important from the offing to remember that, that the creator, namely God, and his creation, us, among other things, is very far apart. I think sometimes with our, in many ways, helpful emphasis on the incarnation, we can tend to um, think that God the Father, well, I once heard a pastor, um, uh, yeah, I think it's fine, I was just remembering, I was like, I'm being recorded here. I once heard a, uh, this pastor talking about, like, imagining out loud what it's going to be like on the day of judgment. He didn't use the word judgment. He just said, when I get to heaven. And the way he greeted God, the father, in this, his imagined um, uh, kind of scene, he called him dude. And then I think, bro. I don't think that will happen. <laughs> I, now, to, be, to, to try to be charitable to this man, perhaps... To our Lord Christ, maybe, who scripture calls our friend and our brother. So maybe, bro. I mean, I know it's like slaying for brother. You could
1: be like Thomas and go with my Lord and my
0: God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's it. But um, we ought not to think of God in those categories again because he is so distinct. Uh, and the distance is so great between him and us. So the, uh, the text here is Isaiah 40, uh, 13 through 17. And this is a very famous text. I'm not going to ask you to turn there that talks about all of the nations being, but a drop in the bucket compared to God. Okay. Um, and the same theme is played out in the book of Job, um, if you haven't read Job recently, I would highly encourage it, if, if nothing else, for its literary quality. But you'll remember that at the beginning, everything's taken from Job. And then the, um, the poem is this, these cycles of his friends coming and talking to Job. And all three of them, to one degree or another, are saying something like, I mean, come on, man, like surely, surely you've done something here to, you almost want to say anger the gods. It's very like Greco-Roman, but surely you've got some sin that's not repented of. That's the problem. And this goes on and on and on. And then Job has, understandably so, a pretty lengthy pity party. um, And he's lamenting that he is even born and yada, yada, yada. It is not until chapter 38 that God enters the conversation at all. And he doesn't answer any of the, well, I I was about to say he doesn't answer any of the questions. He does answer them. And he says, if you remember, where were you when I hung the stars? Where were you, Job? Can you measure the distance from one to the other? What about the grains of sand? Do you know how many there are? How many drops there are in the ocean? Or about, how about how many hairs on your head? I know that. Notice, the answer to the question is, I am God and you are not. To which later then Job like falls on his face and repents. But again, the answer to the question is the first few lines or the first line in paragraph one. The distance between God and his creation is so great. Um, Okay. This begs the question, and this is Sunday school and it is the Sunday school answer, which is the answer, how is that distance to be traversed? And the answer of course is, well, Jesus, right? Um, It is only by God becoming man that men might become sons of God. That's the famous formulation in Athanasius um, on the incarnation. And that is the glory of the gospel is that God himself humbled himself and became man, that men might become sons of God. That's what we celebrate at Christmas time. Let's read paragraph two. And in paragraph, yeah, paragraph two, we're going to start to pull back the layers on, well, how does that actually work, though? Because we all know that. We all know, okay, we've seen like the drawing where, see, you're way over here. And God's way over there, and there's like a cliff. You need a bridge. Well, who's the bridge? You know, like we, we, we know the illustration, right? But how does that actually work in this paragraph 2? Uh, um, uh, Zach, do you have that in front of you? Would you mind reading it?
1: The first covenant made with man was a covenant of works, wherein life was promised to have in him to his posterity upon condition of perfect and personal
0: Okay, covenant of works. Works. We don't like that word. Perhaps rightfully so, given the uh, kind of, I mean, in some ways our tradition is predicated on a rejection of Roman Catholicism Though we could quibble over who's really, like, has rejected the tradition. I would say they have, but whatever, um, but that, that word works. Um, before we even talk about a covenant of works, I want to draw your attention, uh, or not even draw your attention, but I want you to, to realize there's a really important kind of thing in the background here. So think about the narrative of Scripture. this creation, and we already, we've already talked about, we are reliant on God to condescend to us. So he has a creation, and then there was the fall, which God ordained, mysteriously so. Um, the, God would have had every right to just nuke it all. Right there, and there would have been no injustice. But he doesn't. Rather, he voluntarily condescends to us Again and restores the relationship with us uh, um, through this means of covenant. That is true even in the covenant of works before the fall. Again, it is we are reliant on God to condescend to us even before the fall. So God's grace is operating in the background the whole time. So when we're talking about the covenant of works, you need to be looking at, you know if you're following the image, you're like, look at the, the words covenant of works and realize that in the background is still God's unmerited grace and favor toward his creatures, okay? So with that in mind, uh, we can go forward and talk about the covenant of works. So God, again, graciously condescends to us. All human interaction with God is predicated on him doing that, and setting the terms by which we can be in relationship with Him. Um, so the word covenant um, is used a lot in the Bible, like a lot. And covenant even exists when the word's not used sometimes. And you all are familiar with the word covenant, maybe most commonly, I guess, in our culture, we use it in the context of marriage. Um, But there's also like, I don't know exactly, like there's, in in real estate as well, we have like covenants that you might be bound by in, I don't know, like a neighborhood or something or deed restrictions. I don't know. We still use the word and we understand its basic premise of like binding words, which if are transgressed, there are consequences. Okay. Um, now, one of the challenges to describing Adam and Eve in the garden before the fall, or if you want a 50-cent word, in a prelapsarian state, so before the lapse, so prelapsarian, one of the challenges describing the prelapsarian world with being a covenant is that Moses never uses the word covenant. Genesis 1 and 2, never there. Um, However, if you, like, well, okay, well, that might work. Never mind. I was going to use an example of crawfish boilers, just barbecue. So if you see, like, um, a couple of guys standing, you know, or sitting, probably, if it was me, sitting next to this big old, like, black tank. And there's smoke coming out one half of it, and periodically they open the one half of the tank and they're throwing some, you know, piece of wood in there, and then they are opening the tank and they go mm, 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 or like make some grunt or whatever, and then they sit back down. Like you know what's happening without me telling you. Like oh, there's a barbecue happening. So just because the word barbecue, I don't know if that's a word. Maybe that's three. I think- I'm wrapping myself up. Cookout. Yeah, in Texas. Okay, whatever, yeah. Uh, cookout, whatever. Just because that word is not there does not mean that the thing isn't. So in the same way, in Genesis 1 and 2, if we have the ingredients for a, co- a covenant, even if the word's not there, we nevertheless have a covenant uh, in Genesis 1 and 2. Okay, yeah? And you, you may point uh, but
1: Hosea 6 does, does call it
0: a covenant. Yes, I, well, so I don't know. I haven't done a lot of the research on this. Hosea 6 does call this a covenant. It says, but like how they transgressed
1: the covenant.
0: Yes. But it's connected. I don't know why, but at the Westminster Assembly, the Westminster Divines did not want to use that as a proof text for whatever reason. I think there was quibbling over it. I don't know. Uh, but yes, I'm happy to. Um, but I'm also aware that like some really smart men didn't. And so I'm like, just cautious, like, ah, I don't know. Uh, I don't, even without Hosea 6 calling a covenant, I think that we, yeah. Okay. Now, what is the, uh, um, the covenant of works? Again, it's likely that we might raise our eyebrows at the word works. Um, and especially because the title works is not supplied by the Bible. Some refer to it. Uh, actually, I think this is probably true of more contemporary theologians. I think, like, I want to say Robert and I's professors at Covenant did not like Covenant of Works at all. They chose rather to call it the Covenant of Life. It's just, what are you wanting to emphasize? Um, The works or the life? I honestly don't care. Like, I really don't. It's not worth a, a, a spat to me. Um... So it's either, again, you're either emphasizing the promise, life, or the requirement. Good works, either way. Um, I was gonna say fun fact. I don't know if you think it's fun or not, I do. The Westminster Shorter Catechism does call it the Covenant of Life. Okay, so even in the standards, you've got both titles. Um, The Assembly chose Covenant of Works probably to stress the Works Principle. can someone please turn to Romans 10:5? I need Romans 10:5 and then Galatians 3:10. 10:5 10. 10, in Romans and then 3:10. Galatians what? 3:10. Does anyone have Romans 10:5? Uh yeah, go ahead, Adam. Romans 10:5. For Moses
1: writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by.
0: Him. Okay. Um, could you read it one more time? So do you guys catch that? The one who chooses to do what is required by the law is entering himself into that covenant and will live by it or not. And then who had Galatians 3.10?
1: Galatians 3.10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide in all things written in the book of the law, and do
0: them. So, if you do not maintain the requirements of that first covenant, you are under a curse. Well, actually, even if you attempt to maintain the requirements of that first covenant, you, according to Paul, are under a curse. Are you guys tracking? So let me, I get nervous when I kind of get off scripture, but let me try to explain it. And if, please correct me if, if, it needs, if, it need, if, if I need it. But imagine like us on this side of the fall attempting to keep the law. That is the, co- the original covenant of works. What Paul is saying is it's almost like you are trying to get back behind that original transgression and live as though you were able to, in a prelapsarian state, keep the original covenant. And of course we know that because of original sin and it's uh, being transmitted to us, this is not possible, which is why you're under a curse. Okay. Um, Let's read paragraph three. Also, I didn't say this earlier. Feel free to interrupt at any time and ask a question. Uh, I will, I or somebody else, we, we will do our best to answer it. Um, but if there's a question, please, please do let us know. Uh, paragraph three, paragraph three. Mr. Haney, would you mind reading that? So you're in the back and we could all hear you. Mark. Okay, so notice after man sinned, it is only bad news under the covenant of works. After man sinned, it is only bad news under the covenant of works. Adam, Eve, and presumably all of their offspring could only receive death after that first sin. They could only receive death under the old covenant. Humanity was no longer capable of, attaining, of obtaining life under the covenant of works. Um, is anyone still open to Romans by chance? Could you just go in reverse to chapter three? Okay, Romans three, verse two.
1: Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews
0: were entrusted with the oracles of God. Right. That's, that's Romans 3.2? That's 3.2. I have a typo then. Because <laughs> I have no clue how that would relate to what we're talking about. for if it were just by works. Uh 320? Maybe 3.20. That's Let's try that.
1: Yes. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through
0: the law comes not so through works of the law, no human being will receive justification. Okay, so again, humanity will only receive death um, after that first transgression. Okay, Adam, I would like you? This
1: relates so much to all the the text.
0: Eight, three in Romans. That Go I, ahead.
1: That I had with the, the fall stuff there of the, the two first and second Adam, and that you, the, either you're in Christ or you're in Adam, and that if you're in Adam you're in a broken covenant. You're mm-hmm. in a, a covenant that cannot be kept. Right. And like that, the footnote there for what Brooks just read in 320, no human being, the footnote is no flesh. That we who yeah. are of Adam's flesh, of that likeness, of that nature, that you're, you're, you're fresh out of luck if you're in that covenant versus...
0: Which is everyone.
1: Which is everyone, by, by nature, by yeah. flesh, by, by our who, who and what we are yeah. in Adam versus to be in Christ is to enter into the second covenant,
0: right? And, and I, I love the language. I believe it's Colossians uh, one fifteen to twenty, um, where Paul is um, talking about being brought out of the covenant, the Adam, uh, yeah, the or another thing people call it is the Adamic covenant, the covenant made with Adam, and into Christ. The like the verb for that is this like violent kidnapping and you're like snatched up out of Adam and you are put into the covenant with Christ. Okay. Um, But the fact that, and if you guys were uh, paying attention to Robert, he said by nature that you are in Adam by nature. This is often quite offensive. I I think to most people because I mean, it's, it's only natural. Like, why? No pun intended. Yeah, that was an accident. Yeah. Although, I wish it wasn't because it was clever. Uh, of course, it's not clever. It's an accident. Uh, but the fact that you're by nature in Adam, the que- you should say, the, que- the question would be like, well, why am I being held responsible for Adam's sin? This is a long, this is a, like a long kind of conversation here. But why is it that if you're walking down the sidewalk and you are approached by a golden retriever, at minimum, you're not scared, but it's likely that you might drop to a knee and be like, uh, and, you know, scratch his ears. Yet, if you're approached by a pit bull, you will, you're probably scared. Why is that? Because you know the nature of golden retrievers and you know the nature of pit bulls. Now, did, did they, when they were puppies, did they decide, oh, I'm going to be mild-tempered and nice, and I'm going to be rabid or whatever? <laughs> uh, so I know people get, sorry if you have a pit bull, whatever. But like, no, they were given that nature by their forebears. And in the same way, we inherit our corrupt nature from our forebears, namely Adam and Eve. Um, there's a lot more that we could talk about there, but I it kind of makes sense that people are people because we're people. If you think about it, like it's the people-ness in us comes from our parents. Yeah. I think it's important to remember
1: that Adam represented us well. It wasn't just
0: in Cal, like, oh, uh, I wouldn't have been there. I was represented. Not my president. Right, right, No.
1: <laughs> no like he he represents us west. He represented how he would.
0: Have yeah. Um, His
1: name literally is Humanity. Yes. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So we are uh, by nature, in my little example, the pit bull, okay? We need to be violently kidnapped if we have any hope of life. I don't mean to extend the metaphor. I was going to, whatever. And brought out of that and, and into life. So still, bad news. Man can only receive death. Yet. Yet, the Lord was pleased to make a second covenant. The weight of the beauty of the gospel should be resting on you now. Yet, the Lord was pleased to make a second covenant. It is a covenant, and I realize I didn't define this earlier. We know it's a second covenant, one, because the Bible calls it a covenant, but also It has the same ingredients as that first covenant, namely that it's sovereignly administered relationship between God and man with promises and consequences. Well, consequences would be good. Uh, With promises and punishments. And it's gracious. This new covenant, the covenant of grace, is gracious. Because it contains a glorious promise that is undeserved. Um, Adam, do you have eight three? Now I'm now I'm nervous that my citations are wrong. I think this is right. It's in the prayer. Does it make sense? Okay.
1: <laughs> for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemns sin in the
0: flesh. So the law that is, the covenant of works, that first covenant, the law, could no longer offer us life. So he sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and condemned sin in the flesh in order to what? Fulfill. That first one, the first covenant, to fulfill the law. So to be saved, whether or not somebody would articulate it this way, this is what's happening in God's economy. To be saved is to believe that Christ has fulfilled the covenant of works on your behalf. That's what that means. Like when you have faith, you are like, Entering into that relationship that you are now professing, it's no longer Adam who's my covenant head, but Christ. And Christ does not do away with the law, but has fulfilled the law on our behalf. I remember Paul talks about this in this like mysterious Romans 7 passage. That I don't know why people are so, you know, have a hard time reading that, but uh, that the problem is not the law, it's us. But God, out of his love and favor toward us, chose to make a second covenant in which he himself would fulfill the terms that he gave to us out of grace in the first place and we couldn't. Well, I shouldn't say that. That we didn't fulfill. Okay. Adam couldn't. Yes, that's why I did yeah. The, yeah.
1: But the, and the... And then Jesus can refer to the cross as his baptism, a sacrament of that covenant of works is that the covenant was consequences. First word there, or did you change it to punishment? As that yeah. The, in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Yeah. Christ never ate of it, but that his baptism into the covenant of um, works was to go to the cross and be killed as if he had broken it and take the punishment for
0: Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Um, paragraph four. Elder Mr. Haney, would you. Uh... Mind reading that one?
1: Sorry. This covenant phrase is frequently identified in Scripture as a testament, in
0: reference to the death of Jesus Christ, the testator to the everlasting inheritance and everything included in that legacy. Um, there's a good bit we could say here. I just want to point out to you, just for the sake of time as well, testament. The the Westminster Divines and others will testament covenant is a similar kind of language. Um, and so when you, you know, are flipping through your Bible and you see the New Testament, or when you open it to the beginning, you see the Old Testament, you can almost just plug and play their covenants. Is like the, the language there is, is kind of the same, okay? Um, but let's talk about the Old Testament. Um, and let's look at paragraph five. This covenant... Was, I, and also too, I, this is a very helpful paragraph. So please listen if, if you've kind of checked out. It's very helpful. This covenant was administered differently in the time of the law and in the time of the gospel. Under the law, it was administered by promises prophecies, sacrifices, circumcision, the Paschal Lamb, and other types and ordinances given to the Jewish people, all foreshadowing Christ. For that time, the covenant administered under the law through the operation of the Spirit was sufficient and effective in instructing the elect and building up their faith in the promised Messiah by whom they had full remission of their sins and eternal salvation. This administration is called the Old Testament. Um, So thus far, the confession has been, uh, or has discussed the covenant of works and the covenant of grace, and also discussed, the different language that the Bible uses to discuss them, namely covenant or, uh, or covenant of works, covenant of uh, life or testament. Uh, in this paragraph, the confession discusses how the covenant of grace has been differently administered under the law and under the gospel. Okay, So you guys, are you, you guys know what this is saying, right? Same thing given out differently. Um, And I will admit, or just, this can get a little confusing. Um, And what's really confusing is that in this paragraph, they're talking about the law, or sorry, the time of the law, but they're not talking about the covenant of works. So when they're talking about the time of the law here, they're talking about the Old Testament, and so, what they're saying is they're dividing history in half and saying there is a time before Christ, the law, and a time after the gospel. And then you have this one thing, the covenant of grace, that is being given out in each of those periods of time, yet in a different way, if that makes sense. So, in the Old Testament, we have the signs and prophecies the various rituals and all that kind of stuff, the ceremonial washings. And then in the New Testament, we have uh, baptism, the Lord's Supper, the preaching of the word, etc. Same thing is being given to God's people, namely the covenant of grace, yet in a different way. Um, I had a professor, um, Jack Collins, who used to say to be provocateur, which he was and is, but he would say, what's so new about the New Testament? As a joke, meaning like the same thing is being given, namely grace in the New Testament um, than the old. Or as, as in the old, yeah.
1: It seems awfully neat uh, to just slice it that way. and I, I wonder if that really squares with the biblical data, is that like the temple still existed, the apostles still met in the temple, didn't say, smash the temple, Jesus has been risen, uh, crush that, done with that, away with that. And like later, Acts 20 or something, Paul pays for some guys to have a Nazarite vow done. And mm-hmm. I mean, at the very least, there was an overlap of four years. Of those sure. Two. At the very least.
0: I think so. I don't know. I don't know what I'd be committing myself to if I agreed with you. I think so. I think that makes sense. Um, that there was yeah a, a kind of overlap period there, which gets into like what's going on at Pentecost and like all that stuff.
1: Well, I'm like, but you mentioned the New Testament page in our Bible. Does that?
0: Well, yeah. I mean, then you got like John. Like, is John the Baptist an Old Testament prophet or like?
1: Jesus even said. Yeah, I the, know. The, like, so you would need something in like, the middle of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John for like, where the
0: New Testament starts, if that were... Oh, I see what you're saying. Uh, yes, I think mean, it's fine. But like, as a general category, yeah, so, I, yeah. think it's, yeah. I think it's helpful to just, again, think of it in terms of, by and large, we can think of there being a time of the law and a time of the gospel, however those overlap or not, and the same thing is being given in both of those time periods, yet through different means. One too, because
1: I would guess if you ask the average churchgoer covenant of works and covenant of grace, drag and drop where you think that goes. I would guess many people say covenant
0: of works is the Old Testament. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, even I was going to ask the room, I thought about it, but before we even started, I was just going to like kind of cold call you and say, how were the people in the old Testament justified if at all? And just to see what kind of the different responses would be. And if, if at any point we say anything other than Christ himself, we're in error. Um, and I think just we need to keep that as a, as a guardrail or like a wall, like in our in our minds that there's no there's no other way to be saved other than Christ. And Christ gives himself differently in different periods of time. And just really quickly here, um, paragraph six, and then I've got like two uses, which is what the Puritans would call application. I just I'd like use better. Um, Uh, But, uh, paragraph six, and then some uses. Under the gospel, Christ himself, the substance of God's grace, was revealed. The ordinances of this New Testament are the preaching of the word and the administration of the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Although these are fewer in number and are administered with more simplicity and less outward glory, yet they are available to all nations." Jews and Gentiles, and in them the spiritual power of the covenant of grace is more fully developed. There are not then two essentially different covenants of grace, but one in the same covenant under different dispensations. The Westminster divines are not dispensational uh, folks, okay? Let's take that word like literally, it's just time, okay? Okay. So again, it's emphasizing the same thing that we've been talking about. And a couple of things that I would like us to just close here by thinking about, and especially as we begin to prepare our hearts for worship, I think these are especially pertinent. Um, The form of the covenant of works was working. Do this and live. Though gracious, but do this and live. Where works were the ground and condition of man's justification. In the covenant of grace, however, works are still required. Um, Really quickly, let me explain. Works under the covenant of grace, well, let me say it like this. Unlike the covenant of works, unlike the covenant of works, Good works are not required for justification, but as attestation of our love of God. Not as a cause of our salvation, but as evidence of our adoption. And then one, there's, I have a bunch of that we don't have time for, but one, one other thing to think about when we're meditating on the beauty and the, the richness of the covenant of grace, and it's far, Referability. That's whatever. That's not a word, but why we should prefer it so much more than the covenant of works. Um, And God's love for us to enter into a covenant a second time. We are not the only ones who fell. There was a fall that took place before us at some point, namely that of the angels. But God mysteriously has chosen to lavish us with his love and enter into a second covenant with us and not those glorious beings. I don't know that we're giving any evidence or indication that there will be a kind of covenant of grace extended to the angelic beings. Yet we, like flesh, this physical fleshly things, He does. It is out of his sheer grace and mercy and loving kindness that he chooses to do so. And it's because of that that we should still demand good works. But because that's already happened, it cannot go in reverse. The works do not get you into God's love and favor. But they must be born out of that. And if they are not, you need to work that out with fear and trembling. So, again, we need to emphasize the covenant of grace, but there should be no category in our mind, or now I'm getting preachy, there is no category in the Westminster Confession for the so called carnal Christian. That does not exist. Um, we are out of time. So I hope that was helpful. This is a really contentious chapter, or can be, in the confession. But I think if we read it on its face, it's a very helpful guide for keeping straight how God uh, distributes his grace to those Old Testament saints and now us in the New Testament. Um, I had another bit—I'll just leave you with this. Also think, too, about the simplicity of the way that it's administered in the New Testament— that ought to inform the way that we worship as well on the Lord's Day. And so we shouldn't look back at all the bells and smells of, like the, um, of the Old Testament with envy because we have something that's, that's better. Okay. Um, okay, I will stop there. Thank you all.